0: Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. All right, let's open up our Bibles, and uh, we're going to uh, be in the book of Revelation. As Jonathan said earlier, we'll begin reading at verse 4. Also, reach inside your program and pull out a white half sheet that looks like this called the Crosswalk Notes. On there, you'll be able to follow along in the message. It also has this morning's text. If you didn't bring your Bible along, you can follow along there. And I want to start, as I usually like to do, by reading what we're going to be studying this morning from Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. Here's what it says. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, I don't know how it is in your family, but often in my family, it's hard to predict or prophesy when things might actually happen. So let me give you an example from Thanksgiving Day. For for, for instance, we were uh, at... One event in the afternoon and in the middle of that uh, we received a phone call from my sister um, and she was telling us oh our day is kind of it's not going as planned and uh, she said I know we plan to get together later on this evening uh, for for Thanksgiving dessert but can you just maybe slide that back about an hour because things got started late here so Okay, yeah, that's good. I mean, certainly, it's part of, as I said, our gun family culture. I've done that to my sister many times too, and uh, and so we we're fine with it. We go on with the afternoon. We're having a great time. And around six o'clock after the Cowboys game, boy, that was a close one. And uh, and then we get in the car and we're headed up north on I-17. Another call from my sister. Are you sure you really want to come tonight? I mean, after all, it's, it's late and, and uh, maybe you don't want to drive all the way up here. I know you're all the way down there. And so we're kind of debating, what do we do? Is this really going to happen? And if it's really going to happen, we're already on the road. That's just kind of the gun family deal. It's hard to predict. Very often we find the same problem with biblical prophecy, don't we? That. We read something that's happening in the Bible, and we don't know exactly when it's going to be fulfilled. That's why the topic for this morning is this, timing, the fulfillment of prophecy. And I think it's an important topic because sometimes this issue of timing throws people off entirely because we don't know when it's going to come people will either go, ah, I can't be bothered by it, or they'll start trying to figure out when it's going to happen and often make wrong predictions and end up throwing other people off, going, see, it didn't happen, you can't trust this Bible stuff. This prophecy thing doesn't work. Back when I was a young man, there was a guy named Hal Lindsay who wrote a famous book called The Late Great Planet earth everybody was reading this book and he laid it out specifics of when things were going to happen told us that because of this great fulfillment thing that was going on 1948 the uh, the country of Israel became a nation state and according to him this was the beginning of the end 40 more years would go by Hal Lindsey told us and in 1988 boom we're going to see Jesus return of course, when 1988 came and went and Jesus didn't return, now there was a problem. And in our own memory, many of us can remember that happening, right? Remember the big fuss about Y2K? All the stuff and, you know, what's going to happen and our computers all going to freeze up and is Jesus going to come back because now it's been 2000 years of the of the new era. And people were freaking out about this. And we didn't know what was going to happen. You see, here's the problem when it comes to timing. When we don't know what the timing is, it can end up causing us to feel shaky in our faith about a lot of other things too. And by the way, this thing about timing, it's a reasonable question. Let me show you why. In the very first verse of this book of Revelation... It says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Do You see why it's a legitimate question? What must soon take place? What was this Apostle John's idea about soon? I mean, I, I think that in some ways we might go, well, he tells us in this book that Jesus is coming back, and it's going to happen soon, and yet we're 2,000 years into this, and at least that part of his revelation hasn't taken place, even though many other things in this book have taken place. How do we figure out this Matter of timing and in the middle of all of that, not allow our faith to sort of become shaky and uncertain and begin to think and ask questions like a lot of people in our world do today. Well, if this isn't happening when we think it should, maybe we need to toss the whole thing away. And that's an important question for us as Christ followers, too. Can we really be confident in what this book of prophecy says. And remember last week, as we started this series, we gave you two definitions for the word prophecy. Do you remember? Do you recall what those were? In a narrow sense, prophecy is where God is revealing what is about to take place in the future. But in a much wider sense, God is revealing through his prophets the things that he wants you and me to know that are going on in his heart and mind. And in that sense, The Bible, we can say, is 100% prophecy. Because that's what this whole book is about. Letting you and me know what's going on in God's heart and mind toward us. So as we dive into this book of Revelation, here's what we're going to hear John say. We're actually going to hear him say, you know what? God hasn't told us exactly when these things are going to take place. In fact, that's why John doesn't say Tuesday the 14th at 0400 he says soon right because even he as a prophet doesn't know Jesus tells us about his second coming that no man knows the day or the hour so This is something that we do have to deal with and realize that there is always a matter of uncertainty when it comes to our ability to tell when are these prophecies about the future going to be fulfilled. So John, notice here what he does. The Apostle John does what I do when I feel like I'm on shaky ground. Like if I get real close to the edge here, you know, and I feel like "Mm, this is a little bit shaky ground. And I want to be solid, then what I do is I back up a step until I'm where things are solid. And how does John do that? How does he back up a step? He says, you know what? We may be uncertain about the dates, the times, but here's what we're not uncertain about we are never uncertain about our God, the Father, the Son. And the Holy Spirit, he is a rock. And when we stand on him, we can be sure of where we're going. So here's what I want you to write down on your program first. God's timing is one of the biggest mysteries of prophecy. And I could teach you all kinds of things about prophetic prophetic perspective and so on and so forth. I won't go into all of those things today. But know this. Over the centuries, it's always been difficult to predict when God might fulfill a prophecy. Think about Eve, for, for instance, right? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, she was told, they were told, look, I'm going to send a savior. I, God came into the garden himself directly and said to Adam and Eve, I will send someone from your seed who will be a capital S seed one person one of your descendants who will come and crush Satan's head and he himself will be bruised in the process many scholars believe that when Eve gives birth to Cain and she says look with the help of the Lord I have given birth to a man that Eve was thinking here he is just like God promised here's The seed that God said would come and crush the serpent's head. Right? Only how wrong was she? She was not giving birth to the Savior. She was giving birth to the world's first murderer. And it would still be millennia before God would fulfill his promise. And he did fulfill it. We know it. We're headed into Christmas season. He surely fulfilled it in Jesus Christ, his son. But it would be millennia between the prophecy and its fulfillment. And that's why John, the other apostles, the prophets in the Old Testament had to do this. They had to focus on what was sure, what was certain and solid under their feet. And they knew that God was that solid ground. Paul, the apostle says, look, we don't Look at circumstances. We don't keep our eyes here on our watches. We don't flip the calendar waiting for God to fulfill his prophecy because we live by faith, not by sight. And we know who we believe in. Paul says, God has made a promise to me that when I'm done living in this tent, I will be given an eternal home in heaven. Granted, I can't see that eternal home right now because I'm living in this tent right now, but I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and my life will be better by far. Even if God makes this promise to me now and it's going to be 10, 20, 30, 40 years before I see it fulfilled after I die, still I live by faith, not by sight. You know, it's not just that we ourselves have a little doubter living in each of us, our old Adam, our sinful flesh. But the Bible tells us that there are going to be others coming and challenging these promises and prophecies that God has made to us. It's bad enough that we ourselves struggle with this. Jesus told his disciples, look, when the last days come, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. People are not going to be paying attention. They're going to be marrying and giving in marriage. They're going to be doing the things that people do. And they're not going to be getting themselves prepared. And Peter, the apostle, says this. I put this in your crosswalk notes. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires They're going to be actually working against us believing in God's prophecies and promises. They will say, where is this coming promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But Peter writes, they're saying this because they're deliberately, look at that word deliberately on purpose forgetting that long ago by god's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water they're forgetting that the one who created and 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 began this world and started it from nothing is the one who will be there at the end and he will be there Paul says the way that we fight this is to remember this simple truth. All scripture is from God. It's literally breathed into the prophets and into the apostles by God. These are God's thoughts. And when we read this book of prophecy, whether it's the book of Revelation or the entire Bible with all of its 66 books, remember this. God is the source. Every word written in here, we live by faith. And if we are to to live that way, we must always remember the source is God himself. Can I take it a step further? You and I sometimes experience doubts just being the hearers of the prophecy. Think about this. What if you were one of the speakers of the prophecy? What if you were John the Apostle, the author of the book of Revelation, already in prison on the island of Patmos because you've been teaching people about Jesus. And now God gives you this kind of fantastic vision. A little bit hard to even grasp hold of. And and God says to you, now, John, share this with others. You think you might be a little bit nervous about sharing some of the things that we're going to read about in the book of Revelation with others? What about guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah? Do you know how much opposition they went through? When they prophesied even to God's own people and the leaders of God's people, the kings in Old Testament times, their lives were constantly under threat. They were being imprisoned, thrown in dry cisterns, old wells for prophesying. And you have to ask yourself, how do they do that? What gave them the confidence, the the chutzpah to be able to say, I'm going to get this This word out there. Isaiah, the prophet tells us, take a look in your crosswalk notes. He looked at the source. You, God, will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Why can we believe these prophecies that we hear? Why could men like John the Apostle and Isaiah the prophet speak these prophecies that they were given by God? Because they knew where they came from, from the rock eternal. Look at what John writes in Revelation chapter 1. What we read earlier, grace and peace to you from him who is, John says, and who was, And who is to come. This comes from the rock eternal. John says at the end, he says, I am the alpha and the omega says the Lord God, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter. I'm the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come the almighty. Here's what I'd compare it to. If you've ever gone on a trip, and uh, you felt a little bit shaky about going to a new place, and maybe you were a little bit nervous, got on the plane, one of the thoughts that you probably reassured yourself was, God is everywhere. And so if I fly from here and I go to New York City or I go to Thailand or somewhere overseas, you know what? God is there, just as he's here in Phoenix. I don't have to worry because God is omnipresent, and his love his, his care is just as present on that other side of the world or the other side of the country as it is here. You know what John is saying? He's telling you and me that God is not just everywhere. God is every when. That's really what eternal means. That God is both everywhere and every when. He is right here, right now. He's here. He was from the very beginning. And he is to come. No matter when you might think about God's promises and when they might be fulfilled, you can be sure about them because God is already there. Because he's eternal. And when you think about the time when the prophecies were first issued, John, in the year 95 A.D., Isaiah, six, seven hundred years before Christ, all the way back to Adam and Eve. God was there because he's eternal. He's not just everywhere. He's every when. And isn't that amazing to think that when when we hear these words of God, we're hearing them from the rock eternal, the God who is and who was and who is to come. So being an eternal and what's unnecessary ramification of that is that he is changeless. We can take full confidence in these prophecies because we wait on a father who is eternal and changeless. That's the point I want you to write in your, your first item there on the top of the second page of your crosswalk notes. We wait on a father who is eternal and changeless as we wait for the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, It's as if the Apostle John says, but wait, there's more. It's not just the Father that gives us confidence. It's also God's Son who gives us confidence. John goes on to say that this is from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You notice what he points out there? So important for us to hear those words. Because what he's saying is this person, second person of the Trinity, God's son did something amazing for you and me. He freed us from our sins by his own blood. When his blood came pouring out of his body, that blood redeemed us. Peter says we were redeemed not by gold or silver, but by the holy, precious blood of Christ. And so now we have been bought back from the world of sin and the power of Satan and from eternal death. And we're now given a whole new lease on life. Christ took all of his righteous acts, uh, wove a beautiful garment of righteousness out of them and said, here, put this on. When God looks at you, he sees perfection. He sees his perfect child. You're washed clean. And now John points out, if Jesus would do that, if if he would win the forgiveness of our sins by the price of his own life, would he not also want the message to get out there faithfully? I mean, does it make logical sense to you or to me that if Jesus would do all of that, that he'd allow the message to be distorted or the prophecies not to come true? And that's why John, do you notice what John calls Jesus? He calls him the faithful witness. Not only is Jesus our redeemer through the cost of his blood, but he's also the person who says, here's the message, here's the good news, and I want this to get out there faithfully. If I prophesy something, it's guaranteed that it will happen. And John goes on to call Jesus not only the faithful witness, but the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, I want you to hear this the way a first century person would have heard it. Because in the first century, people thought of the firstborn as sort of the pace setter for the inheritance. Whatever the firstborn received in terms of an inheritance, all the other inheritances were measured by that. He was sort of the pace car of the inheritance. John's saying, if Jesus could be raised from the dead, you can be confident that you will be raised from the dead and he rules this entire world, no matter when these prophecies are fulfilled, he rules them for you. Anybody here like to watch NASCAR or indie races? We must not have enough rednecks in this crowd. It was <laughs> back in 1911 when the first pace car went on the indie track. And I think it's kind of interesting. You know what the pace car does? In the first couple of laps before the race actually begins, we, um, we notice that there's a car out there, and it sets the speed, and it takes the cars around for a couple of laps, lets the engine get warmed up, lets the driver sort of get the feel before the race gets started. In fact, a race car enthusiasts many decades ago got to calling that the flying start for the race what john is telling us is that our spiritual pace car is jesus christ he's out in front experiencing out in front what we will one day experience and in this life yeah we're still kind of spiritually moving at half pace The real race where we're going to truly enjoy all of God's blessings and be able to serve God in perfection and really move fast for God is coming in eternity. But for now, John says, pay attention to that pace car because he's leading the way and what he's experienced and what he's done for you is showing you what's going to be done in you and for you in the future. Here's um, how I love it. It's put in the book of Hebrews. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. The iconic figure of the Old Testament, Moses, through whom we received the commandments, he, he was faithful, but as a servant. The writer to Hebrews says Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. What does God want you to have? He wants you to have firm confidence that these things are going to happen in God's time. We may not know what that time is. Peter tells us that with the Lord A year is, uh, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are as a day. We can't discern the eternal God's reckoning of time. But the writer to the Hebrews says, hold firmly to your confidence and the hope in which you glory. These prophecies will take place because Jesus is a faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So write this in. When we wait for the fulfillment of prophecy, don't forget this. We stand on solid, not shaky ground, because we wait on a son who is faithful and first. And then there's one final reason, John says. And this is kind of interesting how he words this. Did you catch that? This Description of the third person of the Trinity. And actually, it's interesting because in here it's not put in third place, it's put in second place. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. And from the seven spirits before his throne. That's how John describes the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits before the Father's throne. What does that mean? Why does John refer to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits? Well, the book of Revelation, to be honest with you, doesn't explain it. And the only thing we can really sort of think of to explain it is how the number seven is used throughout the book of Revelation as a symbolic number. Symbolically, the number seven represents God's interaction with mankind, and the reason we, we believe this is true is because typically throughout the book of Revelation, the number three is symbolic of God, and the number four is symbolic of mankind. And so the sum of those two numbers, three plus four is seven, represents God's gracious interaction with mankind. Now, here's why that makes sense. Because how does God interact With you and me today. He interacts with you and me today through his Holy Spirit, through the means of grace, through his word. He tells us what's on his heart and mind. Through baptism and the Lord's Supper, God joins us in our lives, make sure that we know about his grace and forgiveness and the eternal life that is our gift from him in Christ. Now, there's another interesting thing about this, too. Because if we go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we see that the Holy Spirit is actually given seven descriptors in a passage from Hebrews chapter 11. And I put this in your crosswalk notes. It starts out talking about Jesus. It says, This is a description of the Messiah will come up from the stump of Jesse. What that means is that Jesus is going to to be a descendant of King David. Jesse was David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And why will he bear fruit? Isaiah says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now, count this up. Spirit of the Lord, one. Spirit of wisdom, two. Of understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, four. And of might, five, the spirit of the knowledge, six, and fear of the Lord, seven descriptions of the Holy Spirit. And some believe that this is very much in line with what we were talking about. How does God interact with us through the Spirit? Well, as Isaiah tells us, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us all these gifts. Do you want to be a wise person? Do you want to have understanding? Do you want to be able to give others good counsel and advice? Do you want to have power in your life? Knowledge. And, and what is the baseline of all the virtues, the book of Proverbs tells us? Because it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to have these, Isaiah says, they all come from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. Now, check out that description. Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, counsel, might, spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. When John the Apostle says this prophecy is coming from the seven spirits before the throne, the Holy Spirit, we could add, And this guy is no dummy. Because as Isaiah tells us, he is filled with wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear the Lord, which is the beginning, the foundation of all wisdom. The spirit of the Lord is behind these words, these promises, these prophecies. And that's why you and me, You and I, we can be confident in them. We wait on a spirit who is wise and powerful. Amazing, huh? So at times when you might feel a little bit shaky, we we hear John say in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is coming again. Look, it says, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. You know what the word amen amen means? This is most certainly true. That's what it means. John says he's coming. And you and I may be going, wow, he's sure taking his time. When is this going to happen? And we might begin to feel shaky. Here's what I want to say to you about today's message. You are building your faith in these prophecies, not on a watch, not on a calendar. You are building them on the almighty God himself who is as sure and certain as the rock eternal. You are building him on a father who is eternal and changeless. You are building your faith in these promises on a son who is faithful as a witness and first in everything. You are building them on a spirit who is wise and powerful. And so if sometimes you feel like, man, my faith is so small, so tiny, I want you to remember what God says about that. When you feel shaky, I want you to remember that Jesus said, look, it doesn't matter how small your faith is. If your faith is as small as a mustard seed, you can do amazing things. I want you to remember that your faith, whether you possess a a big faith, or a small faith, a mustard seed faith, that's God's gift to you. And, and believe that even if it's just that tiny mustard seed faith, and, and as shaky as can be, remember that Jesus says amazing things can still be worked because that faith is resting on the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can I give you a real practical application of this? Some of you, maybe when you're hearing about the love one another offering, are going, man, I don't know. I I, I love what this church is doing. Their vision is big. I love it that that we want to be a world-changing church through the power of the gospel. But I don't know. I don't know how much I have. I don't know if I can give anything to this. Here's what I want to challenge you on. Here's what I want you to think about. What if you can only give a buck? Is that too small? Jesus looked at the widow's mite and called it a great gift. If you can only give a dollar, don't look upon that as too small. Look at that as a little tiny mustard seed that might do a lot. If you can only give five or ten, that's that little seed that when it's resting on a triune God will allow us to truly love one another all the way around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember what God says. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the size of your God that matters. And we have a big, big God. Take a look, if you will, with me at the prayer that the psalmist prays when he feels weak in his faith. He knows that faith, no matter how big or small, is God's gift. And he says, sustain me, my God, according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. I will always have regard for your decrees. So sustain me, God. And Paul writes to Timothy with this encouragement, this challenge to Timothy. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. By the way, I want to challenge you with this same challenge. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you heard it. Not just the human people you heard it from, but the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit who gave it to you. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Continue in these prophecies, no matter when God fulfills them. It doesn't matter because we don't live by the watch or the calendar. We live by our amazing God. Here's what I want you to do to take some next steps. Will you lay your gifts and your talents and faith before the Lord and watch him forge you into a faith-filled disciple of Jesus? Remember, with God, little is much. And then it's Advent season. We're preparing by looking at some of the prophecies about Christ As we prepare our hearts and minds for Christmas, here's a great way to do that on a daily basis. I gave you a link there that will allow you to begin reading about the Christmas story now. It's at uversion.com. You can just put that in. This is a great way to prepare yourself this Advent season. And if you've not gotten into a Bible reading plan where you read daily on your own, again, start small. Start with this Christmas reading plan, and it's, it's not a burdensome plan to get started with. And then finally, meditate on and memorize Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. I want to uh, give you a, a few minutes now to just relax, sit back, meditate on the message that you've heard. This is also the portion of the service this morning where we'll receive our offerings and our gifts And uh, it's a great time for you to complete filling out your communication card, which you can put into the offering plate as it goes by in just a moment. And let's close out this portion of our service with a prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have brought us to this place where we could hear your words of prophecy today and for reminding us through the Apostle John that you and your son Jesus and the Holy Spirit who proceeds from you in the Son are behind this, are the source of all the prophecy that's written in the Bible. Lord God, strengthen our confidence, grow our mustard seed sized faith and, and, and keep growing it as we go along hearing these words of prophecy. These words are powerful and effective in our hearts. Lord, bless every person in this room to cling to Jesus as his savior and to know the complete forgiveness of his sins by your grace. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our savior.